Hello, and welcome to the Orthopod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne, and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopaedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Dr. Chris Schilling is an academic and consultant health economist who has over 15 years of experience in economic modelling and research across academia, industry and consultancy. As part of the NHMRC Centre for Research Excellence in Total Joint Replacement, Dr. Schilling conducts research into the cost-effectiveness of surgery and the reduction of low-value care in the treatment of osteoarthritis. Dr. Schilling also leads the KPMG Health Economic Team where he and his team provide economic evaluation and modelling to a range of government and industry clients with work that has influenced key public policy debates around obesity, mental health, low-value care and e-cigarettes. Welcome to the Orthopod, Dr Schilling. Nice to be with you, Liam. So, health economics is your expertise and it can seem a bit confusing with all its acronyms. For example, you measure things like health utility using health surveys with names like EQ5D, or SF12, which are examples of PROMs. And then you use these surveys to obtain qualies and dallies, which in turn help you estimate health-related quality of life. Can you describe in simple terms what actually is health-related quality of life? I'll do my best. So health-related quality of life is a way for health economists to measure patient outcomes. It won't surprise your listeners, economists always want to measure things and health economists are exactly the same. What we do with health-related quality of life is try and measure two uh, specific components to that. and One's around mortality, so we're interested in picking up if a treatment's able to extend a, a life course. Obviously that's a positive patient outcome. But we're also interested in if a, a treatment's able to improve morbidity, improve the quality of someone's life. And so what um, things like an EQ5D or an SF12 do is provide a way for health economists to reliably do that. So they're surveys that have been validated um, that allow us to ask patients a set of specific questions that then we can translate into a numeric number between um, zero and one, with zero being death and one being perfect health. Another fundamental concept in, in economics is that healthcare is a scarce resource. What does that mean? So economics in general is the study of, of scarce resources. Um, and when we talk health economics, um, we look at things like GP and surgeon time, allied health nurse professionals time, any type of service that we provide. Why do we call it scarce? Well, it's because it's not infinite and we as policymakers have to make decisions about uh, who should receive that care. Um, and so really that's what the study of health economics is about, to say, well, given that there's only a finite amount of health care that we can provide, how do we provide it in a way that delivers the best bang for buck? And who should we provide it to to ensure that we do that? So it's a bit like if you and I are going to the emergency department and, and there's one bed, that's a scarce resource. A bed's absolutely another resource. Yeah, as I said, um, doctor and nurse and allied health staff yeah. time, um, the funding that's provided. There's only a certain amount of funding in health that's um, typically given by governments. And so that means that when you fund one treatment, that others might not be able to be funded. Is that that concept of winners and losers? Is that what you mean? Um, well, I guess you could put it that way, that the 
winning treatments are the ones that manage to, for whatever reason, um, convince um, authorities that they should be funded, and losers are, are the treatments that don't get to be funded. By definition, scarcity means that there will always be um, that choice to make, that, that not everything can be funded, not everyone can be seen, not every, not every health provision of service can actually be delivered to everyone. Economics does have a very strange language when you've got things like winners and losers, but from a research point of view or when you're trying to make an argument to help convince a policymaker, that's the language that you use, I guess. So you've explained health-related quality of life and the data that you collect when you do surveys with tools like PROMS. And then when you work with health cost data in, in dollars, how do you put those two together to measure cost effectiveness of healthcare interventions? Yeah, the math for calculating cost effectiveness is actually pretty straightforward. So we take costs on the numerator side and we divide it by the effectiveness um, on the denominator side. And so all that we're trying to do there, and the formula is pretty straightforward, but I'll try and give the intuition behind it, is to say, well, how many dollars does it take to get a one unit improvement in whatever it is that we're measuring? How many dollars does it take to deliver a, a one unit increase in quality adjusted life years, for example? And so that allows us to be able to compare how efficient different treatments are at delivering that improvement. And once we've got that information, we can pass it on to policymakers and hope that they'll choose the one that's the most efficient at actually delivering that improvement. Is there a threshold for things to be cost effective? Yes and no. So uh, in Australia, uh, we don't have a hard and fast threshold. Um, but you might have heard of in, uh, in any research that you've done that typically the rule of thumb that we use is around $50,000 per quality, but it's not always the case. So what we've found actually some research that um, we did um, a few years ago was to look at uh, funding decisions across Australia and see if we observed in reality uh, that kind of threshold. And what we saw was for standard medical treatments, yeah, there was a threshold around that kind of forty to $50,000 per quality. But for things like preventative um, health and, and public health, uh, actually that threshold was a whole lot lower. So it was saying that policymakers weren't as willing to invest in those uh, those types of interventions unless they were actually cost-saving. Right, okay. So you've mentioned public health and we'll move to a, a more broader health economic topic where you're a bit of an expert in. Um, so the most recent Australian Burden of Disease study reports that musculoskeletal disorders cost the Australian government $12.5 billion in 2015-16, and that's the highest healthcare expenditure of any disease group. Further to this, the National Osteoarthritis Strategy report shows that in 2016, joint replacements to treat osteoarthritis alone had costs of over $2 billion. Why is it, from your point of view, that musculoskeletal disorders and osteoarthritis in particular cost the Australian healthcare system such large sums of money? There's two reasons. First is simply that it's a really prevalent condition. So we know that one in 10 people have osteoarthritis and it's more like one in three when we get to the older age cohort. So a whole lot of Australians are, actually have uh, musculoskeletal conditions. And then the second point is, at least for the end stage treatment, joint replacement, um, it's an expensive uh, procedure. So averaging around 20 or $25,000 per procedure. We know that we do around 100,000 hip and knee joint replacements a year times $25,000 per unit and uh, very quickly you see um, that the numbers add up. But more important than the actual total amount 
it's that we're spending it wisely. And, and in general, those two operations are seen to be really cost effective. So in general, it's money well spent. Well, that's good to hear. Now, the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners published a large report last year showing that up to a quarter of total joint replacements were performed on people who didn't actually meet the evidence-based criteria um, required to have a joint replaced. Now, it makes sense, the medical implications, and we've talked with other people about that before, but what are the economic implications of people having surgery that they don't actually need, and further to that, then developing complications? Yeah, the economic implications are really significant. So you mentioned a stat of around $2 billion on joint replacement in Australia each year. If one in four of those actually aren't high value, that's $500 million of opportunity cost, $500 million that we could be spending elsewhere to deliver better outcomes. Um, Our own research suggests that one in four, one in five is about right. And so we've done some cost effectiveness analysis of um, knee replacements here using the smart registry. And that's also what we found. Eight out of out of 10 were, were really cost effective, but two groups weren't so uh, cost effective. So what we're actually doing is spending a whole lot of time and effort to try and better select patients into joint replacement. You mentioned high value care, and there's of course low value care or even no value care. These terms might sound straightforward, but could you just explain what they mean? Sure. So low value care is is care that doesn't deliver a patient benefit or care that doesn't deliver a patient benefit at a an efficient cost. So uh, there's a whole range of studies that have been um, going on across the world, started really by a, I think it was a surgeon who wrote a paper in, in JAMA um, back in uh, 2010 um, from the States that just said, hey, there's, you know, in my, my day-to-day practice, there's five things that I do that actually don't offer a lot of value. And, and that's actually um, started off a, a worldwide movement called Choosing Wisely, where now we um, are, are trying to really focus in on, on what it is that we as, uh, as a healthcare system provide and to really identify those, those treatments and procedures actually where, where that value, that improvement from a patient perspective just, just isn't there. Is it as simple as just identifying something that's low value or no value and then taking that information to policymakers and saying, hey, this isn't of any benefit? Yeah, the, the difficulty is that there's not many procedures that are 100% low value. What we see is, and, and they're actually what we call in the literature, or what they call in the literature, do not do's. Yep. Do not do it all, essentially. They're, they're, they're the really clear-cut ones. So that we're really black and white about those, but unfortunately they're the minority. Um, what we typically find is that there's a whole lot of grey, um, where procedures will be um, low value in certain circumstances for certain cohorts of patients, but not low value all the time. And so in that group, we've got to do a better job at making sure we're, we're only using those procedures when, when they're high value. Well, let's talk about um, an example that you've got real expertise in in terms of low-value care, and that's um, some work that you published in the Medical Journal of Australia um, in 2018. You used a data set of over 35,000 patients that underwent total knee replacement in private hospitals in Australia, and you were able to demonstrate that the use of inpatient rehab after total knee replacements could be substantially reduced, and in doing so would actually improve healthcare efficiency without any detriment to patient outcomes. Can you talk about how you did this analysis and and maybe explain 
how we can replace low value with high value care? What we did in this specific example was look at variation because variation can be a really strong indicator of potential low value care. So we looked across all the health services in Australia that were providing um, joint replacement and we looked at the share of those, um, those patients that ended up in inpatient rehab facilities. And what we saw was that there was huge variation in some health services, um, only one in 10 people who had joint replacement would end up in an inpatient rehab facility. And in other health setting, health services, um, that rate was up at eight, in, eight out of 10. And, and what we then did just to really double check and make sure that we're analysing this robustly was went and adjust for patient factors because um, doctors, clinicians, health services will often come back to us and say, ah, yes, we're at 8 out of 10, but we're different. We see the most complex patients. Well, we went and looked at the data and actually we found that, no, they, they didn't see any more complex patients than, than anyone else. So we're able to discount that, that hypothesis. And so what we're left with was actually non-patient reasons for why uh, there were such high rates um, of inpatient rehab um, for those health services. And that was really indicative of, of them actually being, you know, a, a low-value care. We added that together with um, studies that had been done here um, in Australia as well as other studies um, that had been done internationally that had really um, done some RCTs and some similar studies to look at outcomes under home-based settings versus inpatient settings. Uh, and those studies had shown really no, no difference um, in, in patient outcomes. And when we looked at the cost side of things, it probably won't surprise you to find that uh, um, inpatient rehab is, a, yeah, it's about ten, twelve thousand dollars per per episode, um, whereas um, rehab in the homes, um, kind of around one or two thousand dollars. So much cheaper, yet delivering the same outcomes. And so that was really the, the strong message that we came out with, that yes, there will be some occasions when complex patients, patients without uh, support at home, need to go to an inpatient facility, but that um, should be the exception rather than the rule. So what you're talking about is more that you were looking at a population level, but yet there are some outliers, individuals who perhaps do need that inpatient rehab. Yeah, our results certainly didn't suggest that there shouldn't be any inpatient rehab, um, but we just need to do better at selecting those who really need it um, because they, they'll benefit from it. Um, but what we found is that actually there's a whole, um, a, a whole part of the, that cohort that actually um, would have done just as well at home and would have saved the health um, sector um, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars that we could have spent on other procedures. What was, um, what was some of the opposition to your work? I imagine working with a data set like that and making those sort of claims, people might have come out and, and disagreed with them. Yeah, we did have some pushback. Um, I think people often are kind of resistant to change and, and our um, report was certainly highlighting a cause or a call for change in the way that we select patients into inpatient rehab. And similarly, uh, health services, you know, have spent and invested a whole lot of money into um, new rehab facilities and they want to be able to support that with, with a whole lot of patients coming in. Our view was that, well, actually, um, from a health system perspective, it wasn't a cost-effective way to, to spend those dollars. So working with a data set of, of you know, over 35,000 patients is pretty significant and in 2017, The Economist magazine declared that the world's most valuable resource is no longer oil, but data. 
Now, the collection of big data is a really fashionable topic in many areas of medicine and orthopedics, as you've shown with your work, is no exception. Can you tell me what it's like working with really big data sets? In particular, you mentioned before the SMART registry, the St. Vincent's Melbourne Arthroplasty Outcomes Registry. Um, how do you use these tools as a health economist? Yeah, we use these tools to really help answer the questions that we've um, been discussing today. So um, questions around patient selection. So how do we know who benefits from joint replacement? Well, we need to actually have gone out and uh, measured the patient reported outcomes over time and followed those patients up after surgery. And that's what the Smart Registry has done over the last 15 and 20 years. So it's such an invaluable resource for us to now to be able to interrogate and to see well, which procedures work, which cohorts of patients benefit more, what does length of stay do to, um, to patient outcomes, what about comorbidities, are there things we can do prior to surgery that are going to help um, deliver better patient outcomes. So really it's an invaluable resource for us to improve the way that we deliver care. Earlier I mentioned the Australian Burden of Disease study which showed how non-communicable diseases like cardiovascular disease or diabetes also cost really large sums of money. Given their comorbidity with osteoarthritis, how do you include for these sorts of diseases in your analyses, for example if you were using the SMART registry, and are you able to isolate the impact on healthcare expenditure for musculoskeletal diseases considering those other non-communicable diseases that other patients might have. Yeah, the key is here that we need to have actually measured um, the different comorbidities in the patients. And that's where the SMART registry again really stands out. So um, some registries that are just measuring kind of the high level patient demographics, age and gender perhaps, won't have that level of of detail. Um, But the SMART registry does capture a whole range of Um, specific information around patients, including all of their different comorbidities. That lets us then, as health economists um, and data analysts, go back and and do um, econometrics to run different models that can account for those differences and actually create models that can then help to um, differentiate the costs and benefits and and what they're associated with. You mentioned models, and they're also a very fashionable topic in, in the media and so on at the moment. And I heard a very good quote the other day that all models are wrong. Um, George Box, yes, I know the the quote well. Could you elaborate on what that means and how health economists use models efficiently given that they're all wrong? Absolutely. So by by definition, a model is a simplification of reality. And so straight away, that means that that in simplifying, we're going to have to have made some assumptions and those assumptions at some level will be wrong. So George, back in whenever it was... He, he was completely right that all models are wrong. But the next part of the quote is, but some are useful. And that's the most important thing. Um, when, when building a model, what is the research question? And what are, the, what are the key things that you need to include within your model to make sure that you're accurately going to be able to um, answer and inform that research question? Lastly, so you're working on a project at the moment aimed at improving patient selection for total knee replacement. How do you see total knee replacements changing in the future? Great question. Number one, I think we're going to get a whole lot better at our patient selection. So all of the work that we're doing is pushing us in that in that really positive direction. So um, hopefully over the next 10 and 20 years, we can reduce that one in four stat of, of people who really shouldn't have had the surgery down to, to one in 10, one in 20. That would be a great outcome. And I see that as being really achievable. Um, given what we know now 
Then there's all of the other uh, changes that are happening around the world in terms of the joint replacement procedure itself. Uh, we know in the States they're moving to day case procedures. Uh, so there's some really exciting advancements and innovations going on in terms of the way that that, that procedure is actually um, delivered. And um, I think that that will absolutely take off here in due course and, and that that will, again, just also be... Uh, an area that will be able to improve the cost effectiveness of the procedure as well. So rather than a, a four or five day stay, um, if we can get patients in and out really quickly, get them re rehabilitating in the home, we'll actually be able to re reduce the overall cost of the procedure down um, while still delivering those really strong outcomes. Awesome. Thanks again for the chat today, Dr. Schilling. Health economics sounds like a fascinating topic. I'm very excited to hear more about it next time. Thanks again. Lovely to chat. Thanks, Lee. Thank you for listening to The Orthopod. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by the handle at somagradgroup or on our website somagradgroup.com. See you in the next episode.